0: All right, welcome everybody to podcast series on innovative healthcare solutions sponsored by the Conference of Consulting Actuaries or CCA. This is the first in a series of interviews with actuaries and other professionals focused on delivering innovation in healthcare. I'm sure you'll enjoy this session and all the great discussions we plan to have highlighting the interesting people, products, and services designed to better drive a healthcare system. These sessions are offered to provide insights about what's transpiring in the ever-changing healthcare environment in which we live. While these sessions are not necessarily designed to offer continuing education credit for actuaries or other professionals, each viewer can assess for themselves if it meets the criteria for such credit. My name's Ed Podlowski, and I'm president of Morningstar Actuarial Consulting. I'm also the chair of the CCA's healthcare community, and I'll be your host for today's discussion. I'm delighted to be joined today by Gary Stanford. Gary is Vice President and Actuary at Healthcare Services Corp. And you may recognize HCSC as the entity that operates the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in Illinois, Montana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. Uh, Gary is a fellow of the Conference of Consulting Actuaries, a fellow of the Society of Actuaries, and a member of the American Academy of Actuaries. Um, In Gary's eight years now at HCSE, he's focused on provider contracting, performance measurement, and value-based care, just to name uh, a few areas. He also spent some time prior to that with uh, Aon and Ernst & Young, the the latter entity is is where Gary and I actually met. Although we were in different business units, being uh, both healthcare actuaries, we interacted quite a bit to to try to share some insights and, and help us both. So Gary, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm really honored to be here um, and especially excited to be the first one. So I get to uh, help you guys work out the kinks. And if I make some mistakes along the way, then, um, you know, we'll just chalk that up to uh, getting this down.
0: Yeah, um, I'll, I'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to, to find out when that first doorbell rings or dog barks or something like that, you know, certainly so we'll, we'll go through that. Hey, Gary, um, you know, I gave kind of a beef beef brief, excuse me, background, Um, but I wanted to, didn't know if I left anything out or if there was anything that you wanted to share for the benefit of our audience.
1: Yeah, maybe just, you know, since this is a a CCA podcast, you did mention that I've been at HCSC for eight years. Um, Prior to that, I was in consulting and was a member of the the conference back then. But I've maintained that membership even in my tenure at um, the insurer just because I feel it's still very valuable. It's a a great organization. I think um, some of the content that's made available, particularly some of the interviews that are done are excellent. Um, And so I've felt it valuable to to maintain that uh, membership. And some of the work that I've done has been, I still interact quite a bit with the uh, consulting firms. So I think that's been um, super helpful. So yeah, for those of you out there wondering why I'm a member still or why I'm a member at all, um, that's why, so I've, I think it's still valuable to maintain that. I'm really glad
0: to hear that, Gary. We hear that a lot from uh, those actuaries who don't consider themselves quote unquote consultants. Uh, we like to think of you all as obviously being consultants uh, to the you know, senior leadership within your own organizations and then obviously the interaction that you may have with, with consultants. Uh, to those uh, that you share clients with uh, can also be beneficial. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, you know, Gary, what really intrigued me uh, about this interview is the uniqueness of your position at HCSC. Uh, can you tell us more about your role and that of your team um, that you work with at, at HCSC
1: and what <clears throat> you guys do? Sure. Um, so I came to HCSC to take on some, some new challenges that I guess – I used to call it non-traditional actuarial work, but I think it's becoming more and more common. So now I tend to say it's you know more emerging actuarial practice areas. So my focus has been really on the p- provider and network space. So um, provider contracting, building networks, uh, measuring um, provider performance, the um, performance of our Um, networks in consultant benchmarking tools that's where some of my my, uh, relations with consulting firms still continue Um, value-based care and more recently or very recently have taken on um, a role with transparency and the impact that that will have on us um, as well as um, making sense of all the data that will be made available and help that use that to to help us be more competitive as well. So you know all of this provider network space, it's so I think ripe for opportunity, and um, there are a lot of very interesting and difficult problems to solve. And I think it's sort of a perfect fit for an actuary, even though it's not pricing, it's not reserving. You know, it's not the you know quote normal things that um, actuaries do at uh, insurance companies, but it's it's very important work that I think fits our skill set well.
0: Well, you've always been a trendsetter, so I, I clearly see, uh, you know, the value you can bring in that role. Hey, you you mentioned price transparency in healthcare, and, and obviously there's been a focus on that for quite a long time now, and of course the federal regulations went into effect at the start of this year for um, insurers, um, and so that's somewhat kind of the next step in our progression uh, of getting more insights into how best to use the healthcare system by, by particularly your, your plan members. How do you see price transparency affecting health plans and providers down the road?
1: I think it will be a real game changer. And I say that I, I kind of hate that term, um, because I think it's overused, but it really is. I mean, it's initially, it's going to be messy. It, it is super messy. So this year, um, the hospitals um, had to start publishing their transparency information. And for the most part, compliance has been terrible. Um, the data is a mess. Um, sometimes it's complete. most of the time it's not. Um, you know it's very, very difficult to use. And then next year the insurers will be required to um, share that information as well. Actually, it got deferred to middle of next year, but, but still, you know, it will happen. And it's going to be rough initially. But over time, you can expect that uh, there will be higher compliance, um, there will be increasing penalties, probably more standards set, more regulations about how this data has to be prepared and shared. So I think we'll see it being better and better and better. And as that happens, um, I think it really changes the nature of competition amongst insurers and um, hospitals. So. Uh provider contracts are incredibly complex. even even for those of us who think about and work with those every day, they're difficult to make sense of, uh, much less an average consumer. But as we can start to, I'm sure there will be many companies focused on um, you know, starting up to make sense of that information, make some tools available, there will be articles, exposes on some of the, The variations there already have been, there was one, I think it was just last week in the New York Times um, that referenced some of the the most egregious examples they had found in data published thus far. So, but as that continues, you can imagine that the the insurer's reaction will be to negotiate better deals. You know, if we find out that a competitor has a better deal with a particular house, of course, we're going to try to negotiate a similar deal. Or in most cases, it may not be that one is better than the other, but it may be better for a particular thing and not as good for another thing. So I think there will be more um, standardization, maybe normalization um, that will make some of those comparisons across providers uh, more more sensible in the future. So all of that, I think, leads to sort of price uh, unit cost compression. And when you think about the market today, that unit cost is really a big part of how insurers compete with one another. You know who has the who has the best networks with the best discounts. That's, um, you know, a typical thing a consulting firm would look at when they're they're looking to to place some their ASO business or something. And it certainly drives insured prices as well. So when you take unit cost out of the equation, okay, now what? So I think it will increasingly switch to the patient experience, managing care, um, you know, looking at the overall value that the plan is bringing versus unit cost. And and certainly you would expect unit cost will still be a factor, but maybe not as much of one and certainly not as obfuscated as it is today. Um, So I think it'll be a really interesting time as this develops over the next several years.
0: Yeah, I, I noticed too that, you know, part of your role was looking at at value-based care. So how much of that is now going to have an influence, particularly when you're able to, you know, providers are able to see what they're all all paying together. Does that become a, a much bigger and potentially stronger component of um, discussions that your organization and others will have with providers?
1: I think it will. And certainly within value-based care, unit cost differences are a big driver of how successful or not successful some of those organizations are. Um, And as there's more and more transparency, I think it will be easier for, say, an ACO to understand better um, what the costs are for the, say, the facilities that they use. And if A is is higher cost than B, but they have similar outcomes, well, let's use B because that's going to help us be more successful, um, have a lower cost, a lower trend, and um, get uh, a larger incentive out of that ACO structure. So I think that will be, um, it will facilitate a lot of what they are trying to do. Because today, I mean, they want that information today, but a lot of it is insurers are often um, hamstrung, you know, say that their proprietary deals with providers, you can't share that with other providers. So as much as it would be useful to them to have it, you just can't today, but in the future, I think that will be a, um, a much easier thing for them to take advantage of. You know,
0: Gary, you, you've presented at the uh, annual meeting of the CCA in, in the past on both machine learning and artificial intelligence, so maybe help, help. Uh, our audience kind of understand how you're using these tools in the work that you're doing uh, around providers, networks, and, and value-based care.
1: Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll I'll back up a little bit from that and, and um, just talk about why I'm even even have an interest and then uh, how we're using it. So I've always had a bit of a techie background. I uh, I actually started off um, intending to be a computer engineer, and somewhere along the way, I realized, you know what, I like using technology more than building it. Um, And eventually found my way into math and actuarial science, and and here we are. But that techie background really helped me. Honestly, throughout my career, I just had skills, knowledge, ability to do things that weren't, um, I guess, you know, part of the, the typical Um, actuarial skill set and more recently I would say you know I was practicing data science even before data science as a term really existed Um, but more recently with the computing power increases in computing power the the new techniques technologies that have developed it's just opened up new avenues to apply it and a lot of the work in the network space um, the the problems are of a complexity that just make it nearly impossible to use some of the the techniques that we were actually trained as um as actuaries trained in as actuaries so we turned to some of these other tools like and where it really came to a head was when we were building a a solution to measure provider performance it's really really difficult to determine how well a provider a physician practices um they, they have different um, patient populations they treat, they um, specialize in different things, they practice in different areas. There's just a host of, of variables to consider. And when you put it all together, and I counted it up once, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was tens of thousands of variables um, that we wanted to model on. And that, that, that is not your, your, your father's regression model. <clears throat> and all of those variables um, interact in, in some ways, um, it's definitely not linear. So it's just, okay, we need some new techniques to do this. And that's, I think when I really got deep into, okay, what are some of the, the alternatives? Um, and you get into some of the decision tree models and um, more advanced flavors of regression um, and maybe what a lot of people think of when you hear the term machine learning, you think of neural networks. Um, which are incredibly powerful, also incredibly difficult to explain what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, but a lot of these techniques can be used to solve some of these more um, complicated problems where the data is huge, the variables are huge, the, um, the, the, the interactions are, are too vast to even contemplate individually. So you need an automated way to do it. And I think that was my particular focus and, and why I went down that path. But you could really think about any actuarial problem these days and realize the amount of data that we have available to us has vastly expanded. Um, the computational power available to us has vastly expanded and gotten cheaper. Um, a lot of the the you know traditional actuarial models I think were 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 very practical. They were the best that could be done with constraints of the time but I think we can do a lot better now and uh you know one of my fears is that if we don't someone else will and uh sort of render render some of the actual work uh less less or more obsolete so that's been my approach and I you know I I I am a practitioner I use a lot of data science I also feel strongly that it's something more actuaries need to um, adopt and develop and maybe. The realistic part of me uh, accepts that it's already really, really difficult to become an actuary. And then if you have to become a data scientist on top of that, that's just maybe not realistic to expect that um, everybody can sort of master all of those domains. So there will be some element of knowing enough so that we can work with others um, who are experts in that particular field. Just the same way, you know, we work with attorneys and IT folks and, you know, others, I think that same sort of model will emerge, but we need to have the foundational knowledge to guide it.
0: I think the expertise, the the insurance expertise, uh, the skills that you bring in addition to the data science makes you a much more powerful asset to your organization than just probably uh, uh, understanding how to manipulate the data on its own. Having that healthcare background, I'm sure, provides a lot of a lot of insights that others don't have. So I, I would be be in 100% agreement with you. You know, Gary, it'd be, be interesting. You know, you've talked a lot about how you're using machine learning, artificial intelligence, and mm-hmm. focusing on uh, your work with, with providers and value-based care. So, you know, kind of tying this all together, you know, what value do your plan participants and and maybe you can even touch on on providers kind of receive from the type of work that you do?
1: Yeah, so, and that is one thing that I, I really enjoy about the, the areas that I focus in is really there's a direct tie to some of the work that I've focused on and providing um, lower cost products, plans to our members, um, and helping providers understand the, the drivers of their performance, things that they can do better, helping um, the, the ACOs, and other value-based care organizations to to be successful, which of course we want. Um, So um, yeah, I mean, negotiating better contracts, building better networks, um, at least in some cases steering, in other cases, just providing the knowledge to members of who who is likely to treat their condition best, most cost-effectively, reduce their out-of-pocket expense. I mean, these all have a very positive impact on on the membership, and then providers on on the other side uh, they they want feedback, they need feedback. You know, it's it's one thing, and it's there have been some very frustrating conversations within ACOS where you say, well, you know, your trend was too high, and there's there's no incentive uh, this year, and it's like, well, why? What what could we do? How could we improve? And those are very difficult answer or questions to answer. But as we drill down into some of these things, like, well, okay, if you, some of the outside specialists that are used, if you use this specialist versus that specialist or this facility versus that facility, or um, you know this particular area of utilization is a little out of whack with, with the norms. So these are things that maybe you can focus on and tighten up your protocols. So those are all things that I think just help the system as a whole work better. So ideally, I guess what I'm trying to do is is help the system be more affordable or become less unaffordable. I mean, unfortunately, costs <laughs> keep going up. We're not going the other direction, right? But uh, maybe someday, but at least we can go up less is what I'm trying to achieve.
0: Great, great. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, just trying to wrap things up here. I do have one last question for you. If you hadn't decided to choose a career path as an actuary, what would you what would you be doing for a career today?
1: Uh, you know, honestly, at the point that I switched my major in college, I was really trying to figure that out because <laughs> you know I mentioned I was computer engineering. It's like okay, mm-hmm. um, this this isn't for me. Um, what am I going to do? So my my plan B was um, professor. Because uh, I do enjoy teaching, mentoring, um, helping others learn, and I thought that would have been great. You know, unfortunately, that's a that's a very long path. And of course, the naive college kid in me thought actuary sounded like something easier, which it turned out very much not to be. Um, but yeah, so a college professor, a math professor in particular, that was um, that was one path I considered. Um, the other, I, I would say my, my dream job back at that point was um, a, a, a physics PhD, a physics researcher. You know, let's figure out how the universe works. Uh, that sounded like a lot of fun.
0: Well, well, that explains your background, but, but I certainly tell you, you know, I, I think you've been a great educator for us here today, so I, I really appreciate you. Sharing your time. Um, I'd really like to encourage our viewers who also participate in our healthcare community to continue any discussion about the insights shared here uh, on this platform. If if you're not a member of the CCA, you may want to consider joining, not only experience the benefit of the community platforms of the CCA for informal discussions like this, but also some of the other great benefits our, our members enjoy. Gary, thanks for being here today and sharing your experiences at at what you and and HCSC are doing to drive innovation in healthcare. I'm sure our audience benefited from the time you spent with us. I I know I did. Thanks again.
1: Thank you. This has been great. And hopefully um, others out there thinking about how they can use their actuarial skills to to innovate and do some new and interesting things. There's there's tons of opportunity. Um, You just got to go seize it.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: Thank you.